If you would turn with me to the book of Esther, it is the it is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. It comes right before the book of Job. So if you want to go from Psalms and just move backward through the book of Job and you'll find your way to Esther. We're going to be spending a number of weeks, at least I think about 10 weeks in this book as we make our way through it. It may be a little bit longer depending if we just get situated on a certain passage. But right now we're going to be taking about 10 weeks to go through the book of Esther And this morning, I want to take time just to provide an introduction. So we'll we'll look at the opening passages, but mostly this is going to be an introduction to the history with respect to the book of Esther, because the history of where Esther sits in the scriptures and, and its meaning is is very very important. Like I said, it's the last of the history books, and and it is it is an interesting, very interesting book. It it begins um, like any story because Esther is a story. Esther is a narrative. It is it is not what is known as didactic. It is not a teaching book like Titus, where we just finished in Titus. Esther is a story. And it's an intriguing story. You, you remember this a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Who doesn't know where that begins? As you see these words scrolling on the screen. And then this massive, um, is it Carillion Cruiser? This, this comes by and Star Wars begins. Well, this, this begins in a similar way, and it's an epic story. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, that's how you pronounce that name, Ahasuerus. Um, the Greek, that's the Hebrew name. The Greek name is Xerxes, which is much easier to say, but I've determined I'm not going to say that because that's not what's written here. This Ahasuerus is what is written here. And so that's where we're going to be. And it is, it's an intriguing story with, with ancient, ancient twists and turns and surprising reversals. Something that is a theme throughout the book of Esther. And, and because of that, it can almost seem as we're reading Esther that it's more like fiction than it is history. But history, it is. And uh, interestingly, prior to and since its inclusion in the canon of Scripture, the book of Esther has created much controversy. Some ancient scholars and many modern scholars contend that this book has no business being in the Bible. No business at all. John Calvin, as we know, never preached from it. And Martin Luther abhorred it, saying that it was a book that was way too Jewish. And because most importantly, God's name is never mentioned in the entire book. Not once. Do you see any reference to God? Do you see the name of God? So John, and so, so Luther was just like, no, 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 just get this book out of the Bible. But it is in the Bible. And it is the canon of Scripture. And to understand God's purpose for the inclusion of Esther in the Bible, what we first must do is be careful not to isolate it 
from the rest of Holy Scripture because it belongs here. It's God's inspired word. And it's because like every book of the Bible, no scripture, no book stands alone on its own. They're they're united together in in a theme. Esther, along with the other 65 books of the Bible, they have a united theme that ties them all together. It's the theme of revealing God's redemptive plan, a plan that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and now in his church. And it it is a word from God. Esther is a word from God designed to teach us, the inspired word from God designed to teach us and to change us. Esther is not just a great story with a lot of unique situations and interesting happenings. It is God's inspired word, and it is meant to change you. It's meant to change me. So what is the book of Esther about? Why, why is it here in Scripture? Why, why is there controversy about this book? And these are the things that we're going to discover in the coming weeks as we study this God-inspired book planted right here in the heart of the Old Testament. It is here for our benefit. In Esther, God has something to say to us. But God also has something he expects from us as we study this book. And what we will see again and again in the book of Esther, and this is really, this is the the overarching theme in Esther when we talk about in the series of this is God's hidden providence because you never see the name of God mentioned in all of Esther. Here's here's the theme that that you can write down. It is the theme that we're going to hit again and again in this story. And it is this. God is always present, even when it seems he is most absent. God is always present, even when it seems he is most absent. And what we will discover, there, are, there is the treasure in this book. It is a search for the treasure of God's hidden providence in this book. And what a providence it is. So, let me read our opening section. Look in verse 1 of chapter 1 with me. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. That's the beginning. That's the opening scene of this story. A scene meant to, to draw us in, to say, okay, who, who is this guy, King Ahasuerus? Who is this, this wealthy man who gives this kind of a party? So as we, as we open up our time in Esther, let me give you the three points for this morning. The first one is the setting for God's people. The setting for God's people, which we'll learn about the history behind this. The second is the story of God's people. And the third point is the surprises of God's hidden providence. The setting for God's people, the story of God's people, and the surprises of God's hidden providence. Let's look at the, the setting for God's people in verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In the days, a long time ago, far, far away. In the days of Ahasuerus. The story of Esther takes place sometime between 486 and 465 BC, before the birth of Christ in what is now modern day Iran. And Susa, the city that this is taking place in, is one of the four capitals of this vast, this vast Persian Empire, but it appears to be the most important of the four capital cities. And to understand Esther and its place in history, what we first must do is go back to the book of Exodus. At the time of Exodus, which we just recently finished, at the time of Exodus, um, where the, the Jews left Egypt, the, the Exodus from Egypt, God, God makes a covenant a covenant commitment to his people. And this is what he tells them. Listen, if Israel will faithfully obey all my commands, I will set you above all the nations of the earth and my blessings will be upon you. That's Deuteronomy 28. But then goes on, God goes on in, later in Deuteronomy 28 and he tells them this. Listen, if you do not obey my commands, if you do not listen to the voice of your God, then curses will come upon you. You will be subjected to a foreign king and you will be scattered in exile. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord, this is what will happen. And tragically, this is exactly what happens after Israel turns away from God begins to worship false gods and disobeys his command, diving headfirst into a life of sin. 
And as a part of God's judgment, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrian king of Babylon, ransacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and carries away those he didn't kill into exile to Babylon. This is exactly what God said would happen if Israel did not obey his commands. And this is where they are. Their glory as God's people is ruined. The temple where God dwelled is destroyed. And now they are ruled by a pagan king rather than the Lord. It is a a tragic turn of events for the covenant people of God. But, but, God is still faithful even when his people are faithless. God is still faithful. And before he sends them into exile, before they they are taken to Babylon by this Assyrian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he promises them, he promises Israel, he makes a promise to them through his prophets that one day a remnant, a faithful group of people will return to Jerusalem. They will come back to their homeland. And Interestingly, amazingly, this prophecy is fulfilled, and it's fulfilled through a pagan king named Cyrus the Great. He is the king of the Persian Empire. He is a king that is, has an empire that's so vast that that king goes and he conquers Nebuchadnezzar and the Assyrian Empire. And so now the Jews are no longer under Nebuchadnezzar, who was a mean-spirited guy, and now they're under Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great allows them to go back to Israel. And that's where we begin with Zerubbabel, who first goes back to begin rebuilding Jerusalem. And then we see Ezra going back, and then finally Nehemiah and those historical books. And now we get to Esther. Now Esther fits between the time that Ezra returned to Jerusalem and the time Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem. And so right in the middle of Ezra going and Nehemiah going is Esther. So all, so the Jews throughout the Persian Empire, or many of the Jews, or not many of the Jews, some of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire went back to Jerusalem because Cyrus the Great had made a decree that they could go back. Now Cyrus, Cyrus might have been a nice guy, but, but he had a, an ulterior motive. Israel was still a part of the Persian Empire at that time. Cyrus was still ruling on his throne over that empire. But Israel sits in a remote area. And so having more people there and people that he has authority over, it just helps him to to manage his vast empire even more. And so even though they've returned, Israel still remains under Cyrus's rule. His kingdom extends to the homeland, and it's good business for Cyrus. Let's just, let's just make sure we got something going on in the vast regions. Now, the author of, of Esther makes an interesting and subtle point in this story. And it's a point that he doesn't say, but it's a point we pick up as we read it. And as we go further on in the coming weeks, you will see this. Many Jews stayed behind in Persia. They didn't go back to Israel. They could have gone. They had the right to go. They had the freedom 
to go. And they stayed behind. And, and as we will see in Esther, the, the more the Jews assimilate and merge into the Persian culture, the, the less Jewish they become. The less like the people of God they become. And it's no surprise then, as we will read through Esther, that at times they, they sense God's absence. They feel God's absence. And it's no surprise they, they begin to lose their, their memories of the God of the Exodus. And we will see that in Esther. In many ways, many sad ways, they become more Persian than they are Jewish. Does not have application to us in our time and in our culture. Fifty years after Cyrus's decree, and in between all this, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, this book is taking place. Now, listen. In the context of world history, what's going on in this story in Esther seems very insignificant. During this, the time of this story, Greece is becoming a world power. A Greece that eventually Alexander the Great will conquer the Persian Empire. But right now, Pericles is, is shaping a, a system, in, a political system in Athens that becomes the, the basis for our modern democracy. Sophocles, the well-known playwright, and Herodotus, the famous historian, are alive. Socrates is born at this time. Pythagoras is developing his theorem, which I never learned in geometry. Um, and the Olympic Games are taking place. I mean, a lot is happening in the world at this time. So, so what's happening here in Susa is certainly not the, the center of attention to the rest of the world. And yet, oh, yet the story of Esther is far more important and far more powerful and far more world-changing, a world-changing event than anything else that is taking place place. So that is the setting of Esther. That's the setting of Esther. And, and just, just be aware, and as you're studying, as you're reading this, and um, I brought, there's a book I would encourage you if you want. It's called Faith Among the Faithless, and Mike Hosper wrote it. It's, wrote it. it's learning from Esther, how to live in a world gone mad, um, which is the world that they're, they're in. Um, this, this book, this book has some, some things to teach us. This book has something to say to us. An ancient text, yes, but it has significant relevance to us right now. And so this, this is the setting. Secondly, the story of Esther the story begins with a festival. Ahasuerus is king and he's ruling over this vast Persian empire that extends from literally modern-day Pakistan all the way to modern-day the Sudan. That's how big this empire is. It's 127 provinces. And over the century, the Persian army, they've conquered many nations and it's becoming incredibly wealthy and powerful. And so Ahasuerus, who is this great king, um, he, he wants to display his power. Now, he, he may have had power and wealth, but, but as we will learn in Esther, he is a weak and he is a vain king. Weak and vain. 
He didn't earn his place, but he inherited his throne from his father. Now, the Hebrew description of a hashwarash, the Hebrew meaning, um, comes across something like King Headache. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that's because he just keeps drinking and that's the result of what he's doing, or that's because of the way people view him, but that is what it, it means, King Headache. So, Thankfully, no parents have named their children a hashwarash in this church. What we realize and what we see is that a hashwarash just likes himself. He thinks very highly of himself, so he throws a party in his honor for his glory. I mean, it says right here, um, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness... That's who this man is, and that's why he's he's doing this. And so he throws the party of all parties. And it's 180 days long. It's a six-month party. I mean, I I barely make it through a Super Bowl party. How how he throws a party for six months is, is just beyond comprehension. But that's what he does. And it is a party of six months of decadent indulgence, food, sex, drink, and self-exaltation. That's what this is all about. And harass, and then, and then, oh no, does he, does he stop the party for all his nobles? This is for all the, the, the A-listers, the, the famous people, the nobles, and the governors, and the, and the generals. That's who this is. But then, I mean, he just, he thinks, you know, he's a, he kind of does have a decent side of him. He says, you know what, let's throw one for the commoners. Let's throw one for guys like, like me. And so he says, and, and when these days were completed, when the six months of partying were completed, does everyone go home and just really chill out? No, no, no. The king gave for all the people present in Susa. So the entire city, everybody, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. So now he goes on and he gives his feast for seven more days. So now we've moved from the Super Bowl to the Final Four. And we're having more parties. And so it is, it is just, and, and he gives this edict. It is an incredible edict. He says in verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. Now, if you understand, in, when, when the king gave a party and he put food before you, it's, it's, like, it's like your dad and mom. Do you remember when they, they put food before you and they put peas on the plate and you had to eat every one? Unless you were able to cough them into your napkin after you chewed. Everyone has done that here. <laughs> well, you had to eat every piece of food on your plate with your dad and mom. And Hashrosh, as any king would say, yes. And when, Ahash, when they put the king's food in front of you, you had to eat it all. No matter how much they put in front of you. No matter how full you were, whether or not you liked the food, whether or not you loved the food, whether or not you hated the food, you ate every bit of it. 
and you drank everything he put in front of you. And then he makes this edict, no compulsion. So eat what you want to eat, drink what you want to drink, and have fun at the party. That's what he's doing here. And then, and then just to make sure everyone's included, Queen Vashti, Ahasuerus' wife, throws a party for the ladies. Now, look, look at where he throws this party for the commoners. He throws it in the garden of his court. And, it, and then they describe it. They don't describe anything where the, the nobles were at. They describe where the commoners were invited. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fashioned with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold. I'd be stealing a couch. Let's just take a couch home. And, and not only that, and, and on silver mosaic pavement. So, so people are walking on pavement made of mosaic, of silver and mother of pearl. I mean, it's, and this incredible marble and precious stones. What, what kind of place is this? This is where the party is thrown and the whole city is celebrating. Here is a wealthy and powerful king who lacks nothing, who often rules with an iron fist, and as we will see in Esther, he makes many bad decisions. And as we will see as well, we will see three characters who dominate this story. Mordecai, Esther, and Haman. But the main character, the most important character in the story, is God. Is God. Don't get so lost in Haman and Mordecai and Esther that you do not see God, even though his name is never written in this book. He is the main character. He's the guy in the middle of the stage. But what we will see again and again in Esther, and the whole book rests on this truth, God is always present, even when it seems he is most absent. God is always present, even when it seems he is most absent. So that's the story. So we've got the setting, we've got the story, and now we have the surprises of God's hidden providence. There are incredible twists and turns and reversals, funny reversals, satirical reversals, ironic reversals. There are reversals that will just like, wow, and and it is just, and you rejoice at some of these reversals that take place, and they take place, here's the thing, there's no mention of any supernatural in this story. There's no mention of any miracles in this story. There, I mean, God is nowhere to be found. That's why one of the reasons Martin Luther didn't want this in the Bible. It just seemed like a secular, fictional account of some woman in some kingdom doing some good stuff. That's, that's what people think. But as we read the story... We will see that all these things, all these providences, these hidden providences, hidden to those who are in that day and time, but not hidden to you and I, those hidden providences, they will take place through ordinary people. God will do extraordinary things through ordinary 
people. God in Esther is nowhere to be found. No mention of his name. And on the surface, we find him nowhere in the story. But he exists, even though his providence is hidden. So, so the question is, how do we see God's providence in Esther? If, if his name is not mentioned, there are no miracles, there's no supernatural, there's nothing like of God anywhere in this book, well, how do we see him in this book? And maybe as you read it through, you think, yeah, you know what? Maybe Martin Luther was right. Well, he's not. We see because we can look back in history. And not only do we look back in history, we see and we look and we understand how this fits into history as we read other books of the Bible. And we connect the themes of God's redemptive purposes and plans as we connect Esther to Ezra and Esther to Nehemiah and Esther to Psalms and Esther to the New Testament. We see it again and again and again. God's hidden providence is coming to light because we have the privilege of looking back into history. But the people of Susa, the Jews of Susa, never do. They don't get to look back into history. They're in the middle of history. They're in the heart of this God's hidden providence, this God who is absent and wondering if he is present, wondering if, are are we still, we're Jews, but we don't live in our homeland anymore, and we live in this secular Persian empire that worships false gods, and, and we are, we didn't go back. So are, are we still God's covenant people? That's the question that many of these Jews will be asking. So in a story where God is never mentioned, where God is never seen and where human decision, decisions seem to rule the day, we, we will discover and we must work to discover God's providence powerfully working for the good of his people, a providence we read about in Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for good. We, we know that. We have that passage. They didn't. But we know. And so we can, we can look back and we say, okay, oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Chapter 2. Oh, now I see God's hidden providence. Oh, yeah. Chapter, chapter, chapter 3. Oh, there's another example. And we will see again and again. So there, there may not be a mention of God, but God is all over this book. As the story opens, Hashrosh is on his throne, and the Jews are wondering, you know, are they the people of God? You know, do you realize that we're, we're more like this story than we realize? In fact, let me say this. I, the book of Esther, and, and this isn't just my perspective. This would be the perspective of, of many theologians, many commentators, many academics, that the book of Esther more fits into our life than any other book in the Bible. Our lives are more like the book of Esther than any other book of the Bible. Now, why do they say that? Because we live in many ways, like we live in a foreign culture. 
And we, we live in a world where there is ungodly leadership. We live in a world where there's threats of persecution, and there is persecution to Christians. We live in a world where there's prejudice towards Christians, which we will read about in Esther, but to, to the Jews. We live in a secular culture. We live in a kingdom we do not belong to. And we live in a time where we don't, like Exodus, see the miracles and the power and the display of God and His glory. And so we can feel like the people, the Jews in Susa, Listen, Israel's history is full of accounts where God intervenes in the affairs of people. I mean, you just, like we said, we studied Exodus recently. We, we saw the plagues in the Red Sea and the defeating of the Amalekites and the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to lead them. And they heard his voice on Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai shook. And God was just as evident as possible. He was everywhere in Exodus and he's nowhere in Esther. Now, we don't see this in Esther, but we will see, and we do see in other books of the Bible, that worldly kingdoms like Ahasuerus, who who is ruling and reigning over this vast empire, we see that worldly kingdoms, they don't last. Psalm 2 tells us that, that the nations are but a drop in the bucket to the Lord. And this empire of Ahasuerus one day falls. It falls to Alexander the Great, and then centuries later, the Roman Empire rules the world. But, but they eventually begin to fade and disintegrate from within. Then the British Empire, and then you have the Nazi war machine, and then you've got America, the world power. All, the, all these governments and these kingdoms, they do not last. There is only one kingdom that lasts, brothers and sisters, a kingdom that will rule forever, and that kingdom is the kingdom of God. A kingdom where we are citizens if we've put our faith in Christ. That is one story Esther tells us. And that we only discover as we read the rest of Scripture. Kingdoms do not last except for the kingdom of God. And as you will, and we will soon learn in Esther, the Jews are to be exterminated from the face of the earth from a decree of Haman. A decree that the king Ahasuerus signs. Every Jew must die. Now, that includes all the Jews that return to Jerusalem. It includes every Jew, as you read in Esther, it includes every Jew in the entire Persian kingdom. Every Jew, no matter where they are, they are to be exterminated. They are to die. Now, think about the implications of that edict. And if it had been fulfilled, if this decree had been fulfilled, there would have been no family line of Judah. There would have been no Joseph. And there would have been no Jesus. The people of God would have been totally destroyed and the plan of salvation stopped because there would be no Savior, no cross, no resurrection, no ascension, no eternal life. That was the end result of Haman's edict. But of course, 
The Jews in Susa, they know nothing about this. They know nothing about the future and what will happen. All they know is that God seems to be absent in the midst of this greatest threat of their lives. What what becomes clear in this story and is humorous and satirical is the futility of attempting to thwart God's plan. Because when God is absent, he is most present. Now, like God's covenant people in Esther, those Jews that lived under Persian rule, over time they they became assimilated into the Persian culture. And they became in many ways, more Persian than Jewish. And and we will see that in Esther. We must battle. We must fight to not be compromised by our culture. We must battle to not be assimilated into our culture. Even when we don't see God working supernaturally like Israel did in Exodus, we must stand firm on the promise that God is present among us. Now, it's not surprising that we can at times feel like the Jews in Esther. If God cares so much about us, why does he at times seem so absent? I have felt this. I'm sure all of you have felt this. Where where is God? If he's real and he's present, why does he seem so inconspicuous? And when life becomes unbearable, under the pressures I live in from work and family and finances and all the issues when evil seems to be winning all around and I pick up a newspaper or I read something online and evil just seems to abound more and more and when our suffering physically becomes intolerable, we just ask the question, why does he not intervene? Why is he so absent? That's the story of Esther. It's our story as well. Brian Gregory in his commentary says this. He says, On the surface, the story is one of conflict between Haman and the Jews. On a deeper level, however, it is a story that evaluates two competing theories of how the world works. On one side is the apparent callousness, injustice, and cruelty of fate, especially embodied in the casting of lots. On the other side is the wise but secret providence of God, embodied in the invisible divine hand, invisible in the events of the book and even in the narrator's portrayal of those events, which is at work even when we cannot see it, do not understand it, and sometimes even doubt it is there. Thus, Esther, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, shows us that God must be trusted even when he cannot be seen and that we must learn to live by faith and not by sight. Brothers and sisters, in Esther, we will see what the Jews do not see. Behind the 
the party is God's providence. Behind Queen Vashti's decision, we will see, is God's providence. Behind Haman's hatred is God's providence. Behind Ahasuerus' decree is God's providence. Behind Mordecai hearing a plot at the gate is God's providence. Behind Esther being chosen as queen is God's providence. Everywhere in this story, there is evidence of God's providence. But the author never tells us or shows us where it is. But hidden it may be, it still intervenes in extraordinary ways in ordinary people. And so as we will study in these coming weeks, Esther skillfully shows us, skillfully shows us how God in his sovereignty works, works so powerfully in extraordinary ways in ordinary people living ordinary lives in a very difficult world. That's the story. That's the story. God is ruling the universe, my friends. He is ruling the universe even when he is absent. And in Esther, he is very much present. And in every human affair in detail, he is always, always bringing about his purposes as he moves all of humanity into that final day when he returns. So when he seems most absent, brothers and sisters, he is most present. The question this morning is this. Do you struggle with the invisibility of God? Do you struggle what appears to be the absence of God? What you don't see of God moving like they did in the book of Exodus or even in the book of Acts? Do you struggle? Listen, as Christians, if you are a Christian, and if you're not a believer, listen, if you're not a believer... You are ruled by a king that is not God. And you live in a kingdom that is not God's. And the end result of that is tragic. But if you put your faith in Christ, you enter his kingdom. And you become his subject. You become his child. He is the one who forgives your sin. But if if you are a believer as Christians, listen, we do not find our assurance in what we see, but in who we know and the truth we know. That's where we find our assurance. That truth is revealed powerfully in the gospel. The good news that that God is with us in Christ because he came into the world. The Son of God came into the world and lived among us. He, He faced the world. He faced our temptations. He faced and experienced our sufferings, yet all without sin so that he could go to the cross to pay for our sins, to die for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, the God who promised to never leave us nor forsake us because God is always present even when he seems most absent. So one day, because he rose from the dead, we will rise. And we will live in his kingdom forever. And until that day, until that day, brothers and sisters, he is, he is present 
in us and he is present with us by his Holy Spirit, promising to never forsake us, but to always be with us, even to the end of the age. Oh, what a story this is and what truth it has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for every book of the Bible, every book that uniquely is inspired by you to speak to us in every area of our lives in different ways at different times because you want to care for your people, and you do. And so, Lord, as we, as we study this book in the coming weeks ahead, oh, Lord, may, may you, by your Spirit, give us illumination to see your glory and to see your majesty, and to see the many hidden providences where your love is expressed to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.